Are there any good resources for ensuring a problem-free registration table at an event? Well, I don't know if there's, I'm sure there's checklists and resources out there, but I got a whole list myself. So <laughs> don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going to go too detailed here, but here's where I've seen it gone or go awry for organizations. So A, if registration wasn't shut off before an event, like you never had like an end date where people could register, then you have people that come up and, oh, I'm here to like, I'm here at this event. And you never even did the head count for them. That can be a a headache, right? Um, If you don't have a clean updated list, like that you truly, every volunteer or staff member who is checking people in at registration doesn't have the same list or uh, doesn't, you know, nothing was updated or perhaps names got, this happened once with an organization I worked with that somehow they did an Excel sort where they messed up all of the first names and last names, (laughs) right? Yikes, yikes. So then, you know, you're trying to find and you're like, oh, this is the right. Anyways, and they even printed the name tags for this event off of that. And you want to talk about some angry people. People were not upset that their names were not correct. So, so, so some basic things like that, right. That, that seems like no brainers, but, but gosh, like so important. Um, I also think there are the chatty Cathy's that are wonderful in certain roles at events, not registration, <laughs> because when you have a lot of people coming into an event, you know, all at the same time. And you have the chit chatty, you know, person that wants to just, you know, be friends with everybody. It is awful for the people in line. They're frustrated. So those people, I would say you need someone who's cordial, right? Who gives a nice, warm smile, a good first impression, but they are about moving people along because God knows you don't need someone there forever. So those are a few off the top of my head. How about, how do you have any? Um, So one, one recent frustration that I for an event is that now they they want everybody to give them a credit card so that they can put them on the app oh, for yeah. the silent auction. Mm-hmm. And it takes forever. It Number one, you don't really, I, I get it. You're, you're trying to get the silent auction to be more efficient. But, but it just seems, I don't know, I always feel like the... Uh, it kind of kills it. I'm never happy when I'm going to a gala event anyway, <laughs> like begrudgingly yeah. there. And then somebody asked me for my credit card and I'm like, do you know how much the table costs oh. <laughs> for this horrible shrimp? Are you nuts? Um, Rubber chicken. <laughs> hey, at least you got shrimp. <laughs> I'm jealous. Go, what events go are you going to? I only go to the good ones. Yeah. Okay. No, the, but so, so like figure out a way to make the, the, the line not take a super long time and just, you know, don't add additional complexity just because you think it's going to make your silent auction, um, ending process a little bit better do that yeah and but yeah I don't know and and you know what else okay sorry I'm gonna get get on my tangent here because the other thing is is there's ways right so if you not knowing how big this event is that the person wrote in or you know wrote the question about you know you see how there's a reason people have blocks like the alphabet oh a through h is your last name stand here like I think there are some good systems that help divide it up so not everyone's in one long line um And you know what? Those registration people, I know registration seems basic, but they should get a little overview about basic questions that are going to be asked that it is your first point of entry, right? Right. So you sit there and, you know, I come and I'm checking in and I say, hey, do you know when uh, the actual meal starts? Or do you know when silent auction ends or whatever my question is? And there's nothing 
you know, sort of more frustrating than when that registration person just looks at you like with a blank stare and has no clue. Or, the, you know, then they're saying, oh, hold on, let me go find that for you. But mm. then that holds the lineup, right? right so, right. so like maybe there's a designated person. I'm just saying this out loud and I'm sure people who throw events know the answer to this, but like maybe there's a designated person that's like your answer person that, you know, oh, let me, let me bring so in, or can you just step over there and they'll make sure to answer your question. Or you know enough of the basics that you can answer it real quickly because, Good grief. You don't need people already annoyed before they've even walked into then, you know, you want them to spend money. You don't want them annoyed. <laughs> yeah. It, it, if, I, if I do have one thing, it's not the registration table. It's if it's going to be a cash bar, make sure that there are enough of them. Oh. Because, <laughs> because the first thing you do, you get the registration, you walk by all the garbage at the silent auction stuff. And then there's a line of like 40 people at the cash bar. Oh. It's like, come on. So painful. Like just open two or three more bars. It's still the same amount of money. I don't know. Yeah. That's I, I find that more, much more annoying than the register. Or have, you know, now I'm going to I'm going to diverge for a minute totally off this question based that <laughs> you just sort of like squirrel. This is me and my squirrel moment. So uh, or, you know, when when you get that free glass of champagne or whatever the like drink of the evening is when you walk into these things, I swear, I don't know if this is on purpose, but there's like two servers with three on each, like, you know, platter and they're gone. And then you're like, I'm the one that's like, I want the free drink. Nobody's here. So the bottom line is don't invite Stacy and I to your yes. gala. Sorry, we're kind of hypercritical. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit boards. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Happy New Year, Stacy! It's 2020. Can you believe it? Oh my God! It's a new decade, for goodness' sake. De- oh, so we have to figure out what we're going to call the last ten years. We don't know, do we? Oh, that's a weird. That's like a weird the, decade, isn't it? Huh? The teens? What was? That? Oh yeah, it felt like the teens at times, right? Teens, Those adolescents, the awkward teenage yes. years. Oh, I, I felt <laughs> okay, that a lot. So this is the if this is the first our first podcast of 2020. So we get to name the decade and we're going to call it the Our Awkward Teenage Years. So <laughs> congratulations for surviving your awkward teenage years. And welcome to the first episode of Nonprofit Everything for the year 2020. Uh, my lovely co-host, Stacey Wedding, and I are happy that you're joining us here. Maybe you're using a brand new device that you got for some gift-giving holiday event, and we're happy that you've joined us. So the way this works is you send us questions, we answer them, probably nonprofit questions. If we don't know how to answer them, we'll bring in our favorite guest experts, and uh, we will get those answered for you. Please send them to the Nonprofit Everything webpage. You can send them to Stacy. you can send them to me, you can send them to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, you can paste them on uh, uh, the Facebook page for Nonprofit Everything. You can send it to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofit. Wow, that's a long Nevada. list. Pretty much any. You can do carrier pigeons. You could write like on the bathroom, like in a wall or bathroom <laughs> stall. Maybe when we're in there, we'll look and see. We're not answering question. any of those questions. <laughs> we're absolutely not answering any of those questions. Um, but this is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. And without the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, those would not be possible. So thank you, Anne. Here's the question. I am a young professional who has advanced in my nonprofit roles with healthy salary increases each time. I am in the process of advancing into another role soon that will give me the opportunity to earn a low six-figure salary. I am concerned about whether I am pricing myself out of the local market. 
Will I have any salary growth potential left after this next position? Will there be any nonprofit employers able to afford me? Man, (sighs) I think it's funny. A low six-figure salary, that's pretty much the only kind of six-figure salary you're ever going to see in the nonprofit sector, right? Unless Unless you're uh, like the behemoth. Yeah, unless you're running a hospital, which means you're also a medical doctor probably. Um, That's tough. So as as you know, and as all all of us that work or have worked in the nonprofit sector, there is um, some pressure on salaries. And, and I talk to people that have, I have conversations with people that aren't in the nonprofit sector about this all the time, um, specifically about um, we're trying to find organizations that are, are not paying their people exorbitant amounts of money. And they have very strange opinions about what that means. Right. Um, so there is this, there's absolutely pre- downward pressure on nonprofit salaries for better or for worse. And the only way that that ever changes is by organizations deciding to pay their people what they're worth or pay them not what the market will bear, but what those people are, what value they bring to the organization. Um, and being able to stand up to these sort of petty donors that think, you know, this is, this is what makes an organization effective is how low they pay their staff, yeah. you know, what they can get away with in paying their staff. And I don't think they mean it that way. I think no. they've just this sort of weird ingrained, but I'm telling you, I mean, you got, if you answer this question, I'm telling you something you already know, right? I, I think if, when you work in the nonprofit sector, you always kind of have to keep, you know, your eyes open for for opportunities that may be not quite exactly what you were planning on doing if your if your main priority is to accumulate more salary. Yeah. So if that's what your goal is, you've picked the a weird place to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so and having and and it's I, I hate saying this, but but being able to get the be paid what you're worth and staying in the nonprofit sector. Sometimes it, that's a, it's a it's counterintuitive. Well, yeah. It's just, it's a very tiny sliver of people actually get those positions yes. and they tend to hang on to them once they've gotten. Right. So, so if you're a young professional and you're already making over a hundred thousand dollars, you're in pretty rare company already. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not just, it's not just locally. It's not just nonprofits in Nevada that feel this way. Yeah. Um, I, you see the same question posted on like national message boards about like, you know, I just, I got my dream job for the nonprofit that I've always loved to work for in New York city. And I cannot figure out how to live there and take the job at the same time. And so even cost of living. So like some places expensive as San Francisco or, or New York city, like you almost have to be independently wealthy to take a nonprofit job. You know, God forbid you want to work at MoMA like yeah. there's there's no way you can do that for an entry level job unless you're you're already living in your parents or you're in some rent controlled apartment that you've been in for four hundred years. I this is the I most agree depressing. With, I well it is, but here's the thing. I agree. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I also feel like you're a little more pessimistic about this than I am. So here's my thought process. Right, we are seeing more attention, and there's a lot of really cool stuff on a national level happening to try to move this dialogue about paying people what they're worth and, and, and paying people what, you know, what is comparable in the marketplace in general, not just nonprofits. I think it's always going to be an uphill battle, but let's be honest. If you look at just and and plug for Anne, right. And Anne membership, you get access to the compensation study Mm -hmm. that came out last year that you can find on the website. But you even look at the data in there, there are positions that exist that are higher, that are, that are higher, 
six-figure salaries than lower. And those aren't all just hospitals. I mean, those those are rare. I mean, they're not they're not going to be as easy to find, but they do exist. We have large organizations in Southern Nevada. There's large organizations in Northern Nevada. So I think there is still opportunity. I think the question, I feel like there's this underlying sense from this person Growth is important to them. So they've advanced in roles, right? They've advanced in salary. I don't know where salary falls in that or if it more is just wanting advancement. And if it's advancement, gosh, the sky is the limit, in my opinion, because it can be a different size organization than where you currently work. It can be a different type of organization. You can look at growth in a whole new role, a whole new position, uh, how many people you supervise. So there is other room for growth. If, if, it's a, if the concern is about growth, I think there, is ways, there are ways to tackle that. Salary growth is a little more challenging, but I still think it exists. And I think as, as, as we continue onward, like we're going to see that start to uh, become more equitable. I don't think overnight, but I think over time we will. I wish I could agree with that. I wish, you just I don't. wish that were the. I wish that's the way, the direction I saw everything going. Maybe I, I'm Pollyanna. I just don't feel like it's going that way. I feel like we've been talking about it for maybe we've been talking about it for twenty years. I mean, and the part of what part of I think part of what makes me pessimistic is the conversations that I have with with people who aren't major funders, people who just have a little bit of money to give away, and they they feel compassionate, they're excited about a particular cause, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is I want to know what the CEO makes, which is, I find embarrassing. It's like, because yes. like the last time that you did a drive through a McDonald's, did you care about anything about that food that you just put in your body? No. Right. You didn't care anything about that corporation or anything about those poor people that are working the drive through window. But all of a sudden, once philanthropy comes into it, you, your brain changes from an exchange transaction, which is, you're going to do something and you're going to get money in return, right? To some other kind of transaction that has completely different economic rules. Um, the, and, and part of this is that the, the connection between money and effort in the nonprofit sector is completely and totally broken. And that's, and I don't know the purpose for that. I mean, I'm sure people have written books and papers about it, but what the purpose for that disconnect is, but I don't see that changing. That seems to be just sort of a fundamental economic feeling that that if you're doing something if you're doing something for a philanthropic reason if you're doing something for some form of altruism that 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 absolutely precludes you from getting any kind of economic reward for it do you think though i i don't disagree with that what i think is is a caveat i think we're talking about a certain demographic of person that you just mentioned and those are the ones we hear that from. But when I talk to people that are millennials or younger than millennials, the last question on their mind, they could care less what you're making. Like it's a whole new generation and that is coming like generationally, the the people who are asking the questions about what your salary is, yes, they're still out there and they're giving, but they're not going to be around forever. And we have this whole new like dynamic. Now that's probably not going to be quick enough for this person asking the question, <laughs> right? right? Been, but I guess I'm just then. thinking philosophically, I just think... It's a new age. Um, and I guess if, you know, if this person's really committed to staying locally in the nonprofit sector, yeah. Do I think it's going to limit options? Yeah. Do I think there's options that still exist? Maybe. I mean, they do. It's about whether you 
those are open positions. Um, you know, there's a, a great study that I read years ago that said for every $10,000 in salary you make, you should add like a month for every 10,000. So if you are like making a hundred thousand a year and you lose your job or you decide to move on, it's going to take you 10 months to find something it like the equivalent of that. And, and it, regardless of your sector. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement because it shows you've got to be really planful and thoughtful, which this person sounds like they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, and I, you know, I, I I've been very pessimistic The the only thing you can really do is you're, exactly what you just said is prepare and, and do it exactly the way you just said, which is to make sure that you're taking on additional roles and responsibilities within your organization to be able to position yourself to get a lateral move to another organization that may be bigger than the one you're at and may want somebody that can do multiple things at once. And, you know, if you're, it sounds like you're probably not at the executive director level. It sounds like this is probably a person that's not quite at the executive director level, right. but that's, that's where the rest of the money is. And, is. and you'll look at, I mean, even it's, it happens in, in, in for-profit corporations as well as nonprofit organizations that the difference between line staff and the executive director is always significant. And so that's kind of the next step. And so position yourself if that's, if money's important and staying in the nonprofit sector is important. You're looking at an executive director job and executive directors need very specific uh, job yes. tasks. They're good at certain specific things. So figure, make sure that you're positioning yourself to be that next executive director, maybe not in your organization, but at an organization that's somewhere nearby. Oh, and don't be whatever, whatever you do. Don't flip sides. I'm sure you run into this, Andy, like I do. People Almost everybody who's been in the nonprofit sector for some time says to me, you know what I really want to do? I want to be on the giving away the money side because they make so <laughs> much more money. And what an easy job. And it's like, A, it's not easy. There's a whole lot of politics that come into that that no one even sees behind the scenes. And B, guess what? A lot of them don't make that much money. So <laughs> good luck to you. That and, and then what's, I know I personally have, ha- have had the feeling working in a nonprofit that like if if I was in a for-profit job, I could do like a third of the work and get a third more money. Just, you know, and <laughs> yes. is that is that something I want to do? And, you know, you kind of waffle back and forth. Like some days it seems like that would be great. I would love to just be able to stare out the window and still make what I'm making now. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> it always seems better in your head than it yeah. really is. And then once you, leave, once you leave, you're like, oh, this is terrible. My soul hurts, right? <laughs> been the controller at a new organization for about six months now. The previous controller made some big mistakes years ago, and now the finance committee is used to getting into all of the tiny details. Even worse, they want us to do a complete re-budget every month so they can review it at our monthly committee meetings. I'm relatively new to nonprofits. Is this normal? How do I get the committee to trust me? So it's a hard question because... What it sounds like is that somebody previously has made your finance committee really, really nervous. So if I'm going to guess what the scenario was, um, it was somebody keyed something wrong and said, oh, everything's fine. We're in a great cash position. And then they realized that they were looking at the wrong thing or the Excel spreadsheet was broken or something. And then they found out that they didn't have the cash that they needed. And there was a big like panic. So you're calling the board and saying, hey, we messed up and here we had thought we had this money and now we can't make payroll and oh my God, what are we going to do, right? right? So that that happened. And from that point on, the board just decides like that's never going to happen again and has just put the screws to you. 
And I think this is fairly typical. I think in organizations when there's been something problematic that's happened in any situation, right, the board can go from not engaged to completely hyper engaged. <laughs> it it's is. like from zero to 180. Yeah. It's like you read, you like read books about parenting and that's like the worst possible thing. You have to be consistent, right? You can't yes. just like not care, not care, and then be angry about everything right. and then not care again. Cause yeah. that's one way to make your children insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So like we totally feel your pain. I think it's a, it's going to be a process of trust building. To, so to answer the quest part of the question, is this normal? No, that's not really normal. No. Um, it's, it's common. Yes. Um, Especially in situations like yours, right? Where there was some trust broken in the past. Yeah. And you're sadly the victim of that now. Yeah. So, so what you need to do is work on building trust, work on what you're going to do to make the committee comfortable with you as, in this position and that the content that you're providing for them is going to be accurate, that you've thought about it. Uh, if especially, So here's a, and there, there may be a, a silver lining on this one as well, is that if, if the reason was because something, something happened where it was something that was inaccurate, it's okay to show a board your work. It's okay to show them, like, this is how I got to these numbers, but... But at that point, what happens is they get into all of the microscopic details of what you're working on, and then they start asking questions that are not important. And, and that's getting them completely off track. And so most board members are intelligent humans, and you want to be able to have a conversation with them that says, this is, you're not using your time effectively by checking my math. Like, you need to trust me to, to make sure this is working right. So we need to figure out a way that the details can be made available if you're interested in going into the details, but a committee meeting is not the place to do it. And I think, I think there's another piece of this and sad to say, but, but I don't feel like the controller has much control in this situation to, uh, I, I don't know, to, to kind of rub up against the board members on this. I mean, I think that because I think it could come across really like you're defensive or you're trying to hide something and that's not what you need right now. So, I mean, so there's that balance of making sure that you show, you know, proof is in the pudding. So you show that you know what you're doing. You show, you answer some of these questions and and realize it's going to take some time and, and some trust building that doesn't happen overnight. But I think if it really becomes problematic to the point where, the controller is wasting a lot of their time. There is an opportunity to then figure out another strategy, whether it is um, the executive director talking to or the board chair talking to the committee chair or sort of trying to rein it in a little bit. I mean, that's obviously not something you want to start with. But I think if it really got to a place where this was really becoming kind of toxic and going down that hole, somebody needs to address it. And I'm not convinced that should be the controller, right, who isn't even the head of the organization. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see your point. I, the Part of the challenge with that, I think, is that a lot of times it depends on the organization, right? If the executive director feels comfortable with the numbers, this never would have happened to begin with. Yeah. So the executive director is partially, if especially if it's the same one that oversaw the previous controller, um, that they let it get out of hand to begin with. And and I've seen that happen too. Like the the executive director, the board says, I want you to do this. And the executive director, instead of defending staff, just decides that their job is more important than their staff job and then the staff's job. And then they start to just kind of be on the board side. Well, you need to provide more information and you need to make sure the details are right. Yeah. And, you know, getting on top of them rather than saying, 
okay, so so let's figure out a way to make this not happen again in a way that continues to build trust. I think the relationship, there, there's got to be a, a, a close relationship. And I, this is, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. My feeling is there's got to be a close relationship between the, whoever the top financial executive is. So if it's the CFO, the, the controller, whoever the top job on the finance side, there has to be close relationship between that person and the treasurer on the board. Absolutely. They have to communicate, Absolutely. especially if it's complicated, right? They have to have an open line of communication. They have to feel comfortable with each other that they don't feel like the other one's trying to play gotcha, right? That exactly. That if I do something wrong, the treasurer's going to jump on me. They need to They need to work as a team. It's one of the reasons I recommend that when you're in board meetings, that the financial statements or any financial reports are actually presented by the treasurer, yes. not by staff. And the reason is, is that the that's the treasurer's job is to right. understand it and make sure that they know it. So that person kind of needs to be your ally. And if I, this were me in this position, if I were walking in, my, the, I would spend the most amount of time not on redesigning my financial reports. I would spend the most amount of time making sure that the treasurer and I were totally on the same page about what is currently happening now, what needs to happen, and why rebudgeting every single month is insane. Yeah, yeah that's ludicrous. <laughs> that's enough to put anybody in the insane asylum. Yeah, it just shouldn't be done. That absolutely shouldn't be done. Well, and I and I also guess, I wonder if there's not using that, because I agree with you, there needs to be a partnership there. And I wonder if there's not even an opportunity to sort of problem solve together with the treasurer about this issue, right? To, to say, here's what I'm running into. Do you have any suggestions or is there anything, can you set the tone as the treasurer or, or what do I need to give you to make you comfortable as the treasurer to set that tone? And maybe it's even bringing in, you know, a lot of organizations will bring in a finance expert or an auditor or an, somebody who says, here's some best practice stuff around sort of the day-to-day uh, you, you know, workings of an organization. And here's the kinds of questions you as a finance committee might want to be asking. So there's a room that it's not always just the controller saying it, but there's also sort of someone that's the perceived outside trustworthy expert that comes in to share that too. So maybe there's, maybe there's some room for that. I love that idea. I think having, especially the auditor. So if, if you've not gone through your audit process yet, if you prove to the auditor that you, especially if you came from a different organization and you know how these things go, if you can prove to the auditor that you actually know what you're doing, the auditor in that section of the board meeting where the auditor meets, that talks to the board without anybody else present, if they can say in that part, like, oh, by the way, your new, your new controller actually knows what they're doing. And, and I'm, I'm feeling really comfortable with the organization because the controller has everything under control. I keep saying that. It's such a, that that control <laughs> control seems to be like, the theme here. It's going to be all dad puns for the whole episode. <laughs> um, but so having having that, you're right. Having somebody else, an external expert, say that this person knows what they're talking about can't get you a long way toward that trust. Because again, they're not going to trust you. Yeah. Like they get, you know, this we see this over and over again. Board members trust each other; they don't necessarily trust exactly. you. So if you can get them on your side, you're in pretty good shape. And probably, most likely, the auditor might come in and say the same stuff you've been saying, and that's going to be really frustrating for you as a controller. Like I already said this ten times, oh. but hearing that outside expert is is what people need sometimes—a new voice. Yeah, new- and I guess to just go back to that little piece of the question that we did at we didn't answer is they want to do a complete rebudget every month. That's We've kind of talked about that in previous we episodes have. too, where like, is when is it appropriate to, to, to redo your budget? And in general, I think for most organizations and most people that I've talked to, the only time you're ever going to do a rebudget is when something either catastrophic or amazing has just happened. Right. So if there's a natural disaster and all of a sudden you're going to need to respond to that natural disaster in, in a very significant way, 
that could say, okay, we're going to have to redeploy assets to, to manage this. That's one thing. The other side was like, all of a sudden somebody died and it turns out you've been bequeathed a gajillion dollars. And all of a sudden, like the scope of what you're doing is completely different. That's another reason to look at your budget and say, so, you know, we can just do what we said we were going to do, or we can, we could juice it up by 10% or a hundred percent or a thousand percent. And generally those situations are rare exceptions and not things that, I mean, good heavens every month. Yeah. I mean, that's loot. I, I, I'm it's wondering just, what they're thinking. And it then it makes me the say, trust. it goes yeah. back to, to, and it's, and it, and it, it's the kind of thing that maybe even could be fixed with just a decent cash flow projection. Yeah. Cash flow rate. Here's it's our a, budget to actual, here's the cash flow that's coming out. Yeah. Here's the money that we yeah. have. Here's what we thought we, you know, compared to your budget still, here's what we thought we were going to raise, here's what we thought we were going to spend. And here's where we are. And does it, you know, where, at what point based on our current projection, do we need to hit the line of credit or, you know, right. So, you know, whatever the details are and just make sure that they've got enough runway so that they're, they're aware of it before it happens and, and never surprised with wrong information. But you know what? People may make mistakes. There's, I've, I've heard mistakes. Um, a comments about Excel all the time that for every every 12 or 15 cells that someone puts in Excel, like one of them has an error in it. Like so, so complicated Excel spreadsheets are bound to be, they're very fragile things. The, yes. the skeletons and how it works are all hidden behind everything. And, and honestly, probably only a third of your finance committee can even understand what you're showing them anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. it's their own insecurity that they're projecting on you. So so some of these things you're not going to be able to solve just by sheer force of will. And I think it's also important to keep in mind, I mean, the finance committee, I, I'm going to assume many of them are your board members are, and given that they have a fiduciary responsibility, it's, it is not, I mean, getting into the weeds and details is not appropriate. And yet it's also understandable that if there's any any committee that there's going to be extra scrutiny, finance oftentimes is that committee just given the fiduciary obligation. Right. Absolutely. That's the, that's the, yeah, the development committee gets, gets some pain every once in a while. Yes, when things don't go the a way whole different set of pain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is the development committee and the finance committee are the ones that are just, they can go completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> for joining us. And as a reminder, send us your questions. We'd love to answer them. You can check us out at nonprofiteverything.com. Submit your question. Uh, they are all anonymous unless you actually want us to share your name, but we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we're hoping you enjoy this episode and look forward to, to next time with you. Mm-hmm.